Let us pray. O great God, we once again come before thee in this service, O Lord. Now we turn to the preaching of thy word, O God. We ask for thy help. We ask for thy help, O Lord, to hear thy word, Lord, that thou wouldst make it effectual unto our hearts. Thou wouldst cause it to take root deep inside of us, O Lord, that we might know thee better, might serve thee. Lord, that thou wouldst cleanse, renew, and transform our minds, Lord, and bring our actions in alignment with the truth. Lord, that we might know the truth and also live the truth. Help thou me, O God, thy servant, to preach thy word, to accurately divide it, apply it. Holy Spirit, I am dependent upon thee and ask, Lord, that thou wouldst cause dependence in all these thy people to rely on thee as they hear the word preached. Ask thee, O Holy Spirit, to apply it to their hearts. Lord God, we are in awe of thy greatness and thy majesty and thy glory. Help us to see Jesus O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word, O God. We rely upon Thee, O Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Dear congregation, I am burdened this day, as I think many of us are. There's so much confusion right now. What is the Christian life? What is a Christian supposed to do? How is a Christian supposed to think and live? We must be conformed unto Christ. We must be renewed in our understanding, our minds transformed. We must be new creatures if we are to be Christian. And if we are Christian, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. But we see so much misunderstanding around us. And it is burdensome. This supposed race war that has been fabricated among us in this nation. Is tearing the church apart. It's tearing our country apart. I have seen evangelical, supposed Christians bowing before men this week. Some of you may have seen this. Bowing in prayer before fellow man as they capitulate to virtue signaling and the doctrines of devils. Such is not Christianity. We bow to one man, the God man, Christ Jesus, and him alone. At this church, we will be that. We will bow to no one. But we must be Christian if we are to be Christian. We must truly know God. We must have our minds renewed if we are to stand for the truth valiantly, boldly. We are living in a crazy time. Not much different than past times in history where a stand needs to be taken. It's upon us. 
The time of waiting, the time of preparation is gone, dear congregation. It is upon us now. Whether we shall be Christian or sub-Christian. Christian or Christian plus. Christian or Christian but. No. We should be Christian and only Christian. Christ's and his alone. One Lord, one God, one King, one ruler, and one Savior that binds us together as Christians and that alone. And we must stand for that. That's going, to, that's going to require great boldness, dear believer. It's also going to require a deep, experiential knowledge of God. Not a cursory knowledge of God. Not a knowledge of the Bible, but a knowledge of the God of the Bible, who is revealed to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. In our text... Paul now moves in this letter. Many of his letters are laid out this way. There's the doctrinal portion for a couple chapters where he teaches what to believe. He lays out the doctrines of Christianity. Then he transitions in almost all of his letters to how should we live. Doctrinal and then practical. And now we've had for 11 chapters, doctrine. The closest thing we have to a body of divinity or systematic theology in all of Scripture is the book of Romans. And here we get to, so what? What do you do with this? And Paul now begins to tell us what a Christian looks like. Here's what a Christian is, the doctrine behind it. Now what does a Christian look like? And our minds, dear believer, must be renewed. They must be renewed. It is so easy to fall back into a worldly way of thinking, a sinful way of thinking. And Paul's goal here is to tell us how to remedy it. Let's read our text, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy Acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In our text, let us notice three points. Number one, the grounds for our sacrifice. The grounds for the sacrifice we are to make. Number two, the sacrifice we are to make. What is it? Number three, the method of our sacrificing. First, the grounds for our sacrifice, and that's found in verse 1a. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So why should we sacrifice our lives unto God? Why should we present our bodies unto God as the living sacrifice? For what reason? On what grounds are we exhorted to do this sacrificing by Paul? Paul beseeches his readers to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. But what is the motivation for such an exhortation? A few things of note. Let us notice that Paul beseeches his readers. He beseeches his readers. It means to plead or implore. He does not command or threaten his believers. He doesn't lay out the doctrines out before them and then now go, 
if you don't do this or else. Do this or else. Rather, he beseeches them. He implores them. He exhorts them. He pleads with them. And a true preacher of God, a true preacher of Jesus Christ, always works at wooing people to Christ. He woos people to Christ with strong pleadings and passionate beseechings. As Richard Baxter, the Puritan, once said, I preach as, I, as though I will never preach again, as a dying man unto dying men, wooing people to Christ. He lays Christ before the people in all of his offices, all of his glories, all his beauties, and all of his perfections. That's what a minister is to do. Like Paul, all true ministers can say, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. We come before you on Christ's authority, in Christ's place, beseeching you to lay hold of Jesus Christ himself. To be reconciled to God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. So it is a view, dear Christian, of God's goodness, God's forbearance. God's long-suffering in Christ towards us that not only brings a soul to faith in Christ, but also keeps him at Christ. Romans 2.4 says something similar. So the preaching of the law, preaching the condemning power of the law, preaching the law that we all fall short of, has a place indeed, and it must be utilized. The law reveals to the lost sinner the fearful reality of his hopeless state of condemnation and death. It threatens him with God's judgments for his sin. It reveals to him the depths of his wicked rebellion against God. And it also drives him to Christ, the Savior. But that doesn't mean that the law is then useless to the Christian. The law is still of great use to the saved man for instruction in righteousness and as a rule of life whereby we glorify God and commune with him. It is God's goodness demonstrated to us in Christ that leads us to repentance and faith. And that's why Paul beseeches. That's why he implores. That's why he pleads and woos his hearers by what Christ has done. So as fellow ambassadors, whether you're a preacher or a pastor or not, we are all ambassadors of Christ. As ambassadors, when we share the gospel with people, we must be sure to not only preach the condemning power of the law. We should do that. We should lay before people, you are in sin, you are headed straight for hell. But we we don't stop there. We don't leave it there. Be sure to preach the condemning power of the law, but also woo them with heartfelt beseeching to come unto Christ And be saved. Without the gospel, it's of no use. We are wicked, sinful, headed for destruction. Yes. But the good news of the gospel will win a soul to Christ. It is true. The proclamation of the law itself will lead a sinner to say, What must I do to be saved? But we must always bring with it the wooing of the gospel answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved, Acts 16, 30 and 31. The healing salve or the healing ointment 
of the gospel will only appeal to those who have been wounded by the law. The sweetness of salvation can only be tasted by those who have tasted the bitterness of their sins. Jesus himself said in Luke 5, 31 and 32, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we must know that we are sinners. We must know that we are sick. But then we also must be provided with a savior who can forgive sins and a physician who can heal us. On this note also, dear believer, we must never use the wooing of gospel promises as beseechings unto sin. We should never use the wooing of gospel promises in our life as beseechings unto sin. We must ask ourselves time and time again, as in Romans 2.4, despisest thou the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? We have to ask ourselves that. The promises of the gospel should never be an encouragement to sin. And this is the natural tendency of our flesh. But the flesh, with all of its tendencies, not just this tendency, should be put to death. Paul answers this very objection for us earlier in the book. In Romans 6, 15, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are under, not under the law but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. The clearer, dear Christian, our vision of Christ is in all of his mercies, in all of his graciousness and love, the more steadfast, therefore, should be our service unto him. And the more instant our following of him should be. The more we see of God's love in Christ, the more willing we should be to come after him. The more forgiveness we are given, the more tenderness we are shown, the more we should love him. Let us beseech others and ourselves to greater devotion to Christ. And this is Paul's own model in our text. He beseeches us, and it should be ours as well. Next, we see that Paul grounds his beseeching in something. And what is it? God's mercy. It's not a a groundless beseeching. Hey, please do something. Or do this or that, just a bare command. No, it's grounded in something. God's mercy. He writes, I beseech you by the mercies of God. Notice that mercies is plural. It's plural. I have rendered it in the margin of my Greek Testament, as the kind and pitiful compassions of God. And this encompasses the whole work of salvation. The whole work of salvation. All of God's kind pities towards us have been in the compassionate pursuit of granting us mercy in Christ. These are the mercies laid before us. We're implored by Paul to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God because of his great mercies upon us. Both the ultimate mercy of salvation and his daily and continual mercies of providence towards us. This is what we see from Paul. He does not say, I beseech you by the authority of God or by the reign and rule of God. Or even by the law of God. Rather, he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. 
Such mercies as have been expounded by Paul in the previous 11 chapters. Such mercies as the hearing and receiving of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. 116. Such mercies as our receiving of a circumcision that is, not, that is of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. 229. The mercy of the righteousness of God manifested to us without the law. Namely, the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe. 3, 20 and 21. The mercy of our free justification by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which is obtained through faith in his blood. 3, 24 and 25. The glorious truth that to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. 4, 5. The fact that Jesus was delivered over for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. 4.25. His mercy to us that being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 5.1. The mercy that God has demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 5.8. The merciful reality that as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, Jesus, shall many be made righteous, 519. Or the merciful truth that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, 623. The merciful truth that though we may look to our flesh and say, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? We can also joyously proclaim, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, and with the flesh, the law of sin. 7.24.25 Or the mercy that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 8.1 The merciful reality that we have been given His Holy Spirit, and that the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 8.16 Or the mercy that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are called according to his purpose. And that nothing in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 8, 28, and 39. I heap these up and I could have kept going and going. The point is to show you that there is this mountain of mercies. This heap of mercies upon us. Heaped up and heaped up. Motivation upon motivation. Grounds for beseeching. These, as well as many, many more excellent truths concerning God's sovereign love towards his people in Jesus Christ are the mercies Paul is referring to. It is by these mercies that Paul beseeches his readers. It is by these mercies, dear believer, that we are implored and exhorted to present our bodies a living sacrifice unto God. These mercies are the grounds of Paul's imploring. Notice further that Paul addresses his readers as brethren, as brothers. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. This teaches us to spur one another on in the Christian life as loving brethren. It is... Not only non-believers that need to hear the gospel. 
dear friends. Believers also must be put into continual remembrance of the mercies of God. Why? Because it is our strength and motivation for living unto and dying for Christ. We need the gospel continually. Let us learn to continually beseech one another and woo one another with the sweetness of the gospel, encouraging one another in our earthly pilgrimage to heaven by these mercies. Encouraging one another encouraging one another to do great things for God. This is the very prescription of the apostle in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. He says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Notice, but exhort one another daily, while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So, dear believer, what is the grounding? What is the reason why we should give ourselves wholly unto God and his purposes? Well, his great mercies towards us in Christ and his daily care of us. Paul beseeches us by these mercies, and we ought to implore the world and one another with these same mercies. Second point, the sacrifice we are called to make. That's in 1B. Paul beseeches us by God's mercies revealed in Christ to give ourselves in sacrifice unto God. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, in explaining what this looks like, Paul gives us a few particulars. He says that we are to present our bodies. To present our bodies. Now, this is an allusion, first of all, to the Old Testament sacrifices. Under the old dispensation of the covenant of grace, believers were to offer the bodies of animals as sacrifices to the Lord. They were to bring an ox, a goat, a lamb, or a dove to the high priest, who would then slay the animal before the altar. He would pour the blood of it out before the altar, and he would present it as a whole burnt offering unto the Lord in order to make atonement for the believer's sins who brought the sacrifice. Now this was a type and shadow of Christ we know. A type and shadow of Christ who is the great high priest who would give himself as a bloody sacrifice before God in our place. These animals, we are told, were to be free and without blemish. And so too was Christ without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. As our sacrifice. Also, it's supposed to be our bodies as in our totality. So too now, we Christians, being receivers of the grace of God through Christ's sacrifice, our sins being now atoned for in the sacrificial death of Jesus, are made, as Paul says, holy and without blame before him. Ephesians 1, 4. Through Christ, our great high priest... We are made to be kings and priests unto our God, Revelation 1.6 says. Thus, dear believer, as priests, we are to offer sacrifices. Sacrifices. But they are sacrifices of devotion and praise unto God through Christ. As priests, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. 
By our bodies, we are not merely to understand our physical life, our physical bodies. We're not duels. We don't believe in duality. As being willing to offer the sacrifice of self-denial. It's not merely the body, physically. Or the mortification of the flesh. Or even the giving of our physical life and martyrdom. It's not only those things. But, much more so, our entire existence is meant by body. Our body, spirit, mind, and soul. We are holistic beings. In light of God's mercies to us, we are to give all that we are to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, in fact, is all that we can do, dear believer. We are owned by God. He owns us. Our life is not our own. As Paul says elsewhere, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians six fifteen and 19 through 20. Dear believer, we have been purchased. We are not our own. Nothing that we are is ours, Period. We belong to Jesus. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, that's first question and answer. I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. The cost of our purchase was not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. So, dear believer, you are not your own. You are not yours, but Christ's. Therefore, you are to give possession of yourself, body, soul, mind, and spirit, entirely to Christ. Your thoughts, your desires, your actions are all to be given in sacrifice to God. His purchased lordship over you is to be recognized in all that you do. This is not slavery, but freedom. The desires of our flesh subject us to true slavery. But Christ's lordship is, as he says, easy and light. Hence, in being required as believers... To give the sacrifice of our entire self into his service. He does not call us to something that is burdensome. But that is liberating. And easy to bear. Next it tells us that we are to be a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Our sacrifice dear believer is not one that is offered once and then that's it. It's not even one that's offered from time to time as the Old Testament animal sacrifices. But our sacrifice to God is one that is living and continual. God's children constantly living before him in service is far more pleasing to God than a dead goat offered occasionally. Is it not? So we are his and we should offer ourselves continually to him as a living sacrifice. 
As believers, we are the body of Christ. We are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwelleth in us. 1 Corinthians 3.16. The old temple in Jerusalem of the old dispensation was made up of earthen stones, cold and lifeless. But the new temple, which Christ has created, consisting of believers, is made up of lively stones who are as holy as a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.5 Our sacrifice as Christians is not one that is consumed on the altar in a few minutes and then is gone. But it is a living, a living and perpetual sacrifice of our whole life that is never to be neglected nor recalled. This is our duty according to the mercies of God. According to the mercies of God, what God has done for us in purchasing us through his son, Jesus Christ, demands it. Those mercies constrain us, as Paul says. Next, it says that we are to be a holy sacrifice. The sacrifice of our life to Christ is to be given in agreement to his law. It's to be holy. The law not only serves as our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24, but the law also serves as our guide for living after and subsequent to our justification by faith. This word holy conveys the meaning of separation from all that is ungodly. Our life is to be set apart for God. Though we are made holy by Christ's sacrifice, We must also honor him by living wholly unto him. Which is Paul's whole point time and time again throughout Romans. We don't sin because we are saved. It's not a free pass. But this also means that our sacrifice, our living sacrifice, though it be imperfect and blemished in this life, is made holy by the one who causes it to be so. So, All of our sacrifices to God are first passed through the blood of Jesus Christ, dear believer. And the blood of Jesus Christ purifies and cleanses and makes holy our living sacrifice unto him. If we are to glorify God in all that we do, whether we eat or drink or in whatever we do, we are to glorify God. And that means a lot of the things that we do in attempting to glorify God will be marred with sin. However, In these sacrifices that we offer up to God in our life, they are made holy by the one who is holy. We must then live as closely to his law as possible, dear congregation. And when we do this, we must then commit our deeds unto God with all of their imperfections, believing that he will make them perfect. His holiness will purge out all of the impurities of our feeble Sacrifices, dear believer. Next, we see that this kind of sacrifice is an acceptable sacrifice. The sacrifice of our life to God in Christ by faith is made not only holy, but also acceptable, according to Paul. Any work done in faith to Christ is acceptable to God. As Paul says later on in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, this word acceptable here is thus synonymous with pleasing. When we do any work to God, 
dear believer. And we do it with an eye of faith set on Jesus Christ. It is pleasing to God. That is all that is required of us is faith in Christ. Just as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, as Ephesians 5.2 says, so too we as Christians are to love Christ and give ourselves as an offering and sacrifice to God, which is pleasantly received by him as holy and acceptable through Christ. The Greek word that is used here is still used in modern Greek. When a Greek is asked how he enjoyed his food, if it was acceptable to him, he replies, Muaresi, it is satisfying to me. Thus, when our life is offered to God through Christ, it is received by him as satisfying. A sweet-smelling aroma and well-pleasing unto him. Let us see then, dear congregation, that our deeds are done in faith to Christ, in light of God's mercies, having been made holy unto God through Jesus. Therefore, any sacrifice that we offer to God in pride, in self-dependence, or half-heartedly, is not acceptable to him. It's not pleasing. It must be given by humble faith and sweet adoration of our Savior. Thus, such a sacrifice is, as Paul says, a reasonable sacrifice. Such a sacrifice is the only logical, as the Greek word says, sacrifice we can make in light of God's mercies. It's the only logical thing that can be done. But more than that, it teaches us that our sacrifice must not be made with thoughtless repetition or cold religiosity. Rather, our lives must be lived unto God thoughtfully, reasonably, rationally, and intellectually. We must think upon Christ when we live unto him. It's not a mindless faith. Simply living unto him out of mere mindless duty is not acceptable. It must be a reasonable sacrifice. We must live to God in loving meditation of his mercies towards us in Christ Jesus. Remember that the animals sacrificed in the Old Testament were irrational beasts. But we are rational creatures made in the image of God and renewed in the image of God through Christ. And thus, we must employ our minds in our worship and not merely our hands. We are to worship, as Christ says, in spirit and in truth. Christians are called to worship God with hearts inflamed for God, dear believer. Inflamed with the knowledge of his person and of his works. Yet many in our day come to God in a cold, thoughtless, procedural manner. Merely checking off doctrinally sound boxes. Others come equally mindless to God. Except in the other extreme. They're inflamed with mere emotionalism. Without any care for doctrine. Not so is the Bible's prescription. Not so is true presentation of your body as a living sacrifice to Christ that is acceptable to God. No, it must, have, it must be with spirit and truth, heart and thought, light and heat. Thus, for Paul, 
the only acceptable way to offer ourselves to God, the only way that is accepted by him as holy, and the only way which he is pleased is to offer sacrifice to God because of a deep experiential knowledge of his merciful work on our behalf in Christ. A sacrifice offered to him in love, flowing from a knowledge of who he is and what he has done and is doing. That's an acceptable sacrifice. It's a reasonable sacrifice. It thinks about what it's doing. The only logical or rational thing to do in light of God's mercies is to give ourselves in service to him, dear believer. If you spend any time thinking about who you are, where your life is, God's salvation of you. If you spend any time just thinking about that, you'll realize in your spirit, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you and confirms the truth of the scriptures, that you are his, and therefore you must give yourself to him. Once we renew our minds, as we'll see, in light of such wonders of divine grace, dear believer, we ought to live for him who died for us. So now I ask you, dear believer, dear congregation, should these mercies, as we've covered, not produce a corresponding state of mind and heart in us who are the objects of such mercies? Should it just be ignored and have no impact? God has given his son for you, dear believer, to you, dear believer. And with him, he has also freely given you all things that will cause you to be perfected and holy and happy forever. Is it too much then that you should give yourselves for him? Your whole selves? In all of your rational and emotional faculties? During the whole of your life? Is it too much? As John Brown said, quote, Nothing but the knowledge and belief of the truth respecting these mercies will ever induce a man thus to present this living, holy, acceptable sacrifice unto God. In other words, the better we know, the better we should serve him. We see, therefore, that the mind is an important component in the true worship of God. And this brings us to our final point, quickly. Third, the method of our sacrifice. He continues to demonstrate the way this is done. Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This method of living contains a few particulars. Let's examine each. Negatively, he says, we are not to be conformed to this world. He begins with a negative command. Don't be conformed unto this world. This is not what presenting yourselves unto God as a living sacrifice looks like. It does not look like conforming yourselves to this world. The mind must be engaged in such a duty. Should it not? It must be. It must be able. Our mind must be able to discern what is worldly and what is godly. What comes from the world and what comes from God. It must be able to look at the world, the realm of the non-Christian, and discern what is in accordance with God's word and what is not. And whatever is not, it should be able to shun it then as displeasing to God. It's true, the world may garnish its principles with Christian emblems, but it is not Christianity. 
And we must be able to see this. And to do so, we must have our mind prepared. We must know who God is, what he has said, and what he has done. We see the results of this even around us today. Justice. Justice is being called for in our day right now. But justice can only be true justice when it is God's justice. Therefore, as Christians, we must examine what justice is, what the world is calling for as justice, and compare that to the word of God. Laws being made are only good when they reflect God's laws. Love is only true love when it is fashioned in the mirror of divine love. All things must be done according to God's word. And the principalities and powers of this present evil age, as the Bible says, have no regard for God's word. Therefore, we must know it in our minds and in our hearts to be able to discern what is actually pleasing to God. We have seen what Christianity becomes through compromises and conformity to the world. Even every day this week, we saw what it looks like when it capitulates, when it conforms, when it bows down. It's no longer Christianity. It's something else. We are not sons and daughters of this world. We are children of God. And as children, we must live only as our Father, who is in heaven, commands us to live. In no other way. We must love what he loves. Hate what he hates. Live as he lives. Forget not, dear congregation, that God commands us, Be ye holy as I am holy. Ye, plural, all of us. Peter says right before that, in 1 Peter 1, 13 and 14, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. So to be holy, to be conformed unto God, is having our minds in accordance with God's. That is what it means to be conformed to Jesus Christ. But to live in ignorance, to live as ignorant in our former lusts when we were non-believers, which is the only way this world lives, is to be conformed to this world. And this world is ignorant of God and subject to the lusts of the flesh. It's enslaved to the lusts of the flesh. So, To be conformed unto the world is to think like a non-believer. Love what the unbeliever loves. Act like the non-believer acts. Value what the unbeliever values. And such has no place in Christianity. No place in the Christian life. None. Rather, the only thing that is called for is conformity to God. The Apostle John tells us this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. How do we do this? Paul tells us we must be transformed. So he gave us a negative command. Do not be conformed to the world. Now he gives us positive. Be ye transformed. We are to metamorphosize, as the original word says. We're to be transformed from one thing to another, brought from death unto life. 
The unbeliever can only be ignorant. He can only be conformed to this world. That's his curse. That's his slavery. He is dead in trespasses and sins, it tells us in Ephesians 2.1. And therefore, he can only walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It's verse 2. But us, dear believers, the believer, the believer is quickened together with Christ, Paul says, made alive to God, raised from death to life as Christ rose from the dead. This is a sovereign work of God, wrought in the believer by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. It cannot be forced, nor can it be faked. Through the sovereign grace of God, the believer is raised up to life in Christ and made sensible to God's will. This work is not done by us, ourselves. We don't try to be regenerated. We don't try to be conformed to the will of God and are able to accomplish it on our own. Rather, this is the work of God. His, our mind, previously darkened, is enlightened by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We are transformed. We are not non-believers attempting to conform ourselves to Christianity. Rather, as Christians... We are entirely a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We are conformed in greater and greater measures to Christ in our minds. Thus, this transformation is not our work, but it is indeed a true work. A work done by God in us. A work in which by his power we also partake in. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And this all occurs and can only occur, dear believer, through the renewing of our mind, this transformation. This shunning conformity to the world can only occur through the renewing of our mind. The mind is crucial in this process. We cannot believe like the world. As Christians, for the world stands in what? Complete opposition to all that is in God. Our mind must be renewed and must be continually renewed. We must constantly examine our thoughts, dear believer. We must constantly examine our thoughts to see if our thoughts are influenced in any way by the thoughts of the world, by the philosophies and ideologies of the world. You have to examine yourself. Don't just take it for granted that you're a Christian and you don't think like the world anymore. Re-examine. Where is this idea coming from? Is this in opposition to God? Is this in conformity to Christ? That's the only way. Paul could not have made it more clear. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Again, he puts it, in light of the mercies of God in Christ, we are to seek him, not the world. To be heavenly minded. We must be heavenly-minded, Christ-centered. The Puritan Richard Sibbs lived in such close communion with God. He was so heavenly-minded that it was said of him at his death, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. 
Such a life is the mark of a transformed mind. A mind that gives no consideration to this world. The ideologies of this world. But is constantly taken up in meditations of Christ and his glory. So dear believer, we have been born again. Made a new creature. A new man. And thus we should live like one. We should live like one. Paul says that the new man is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians 3.10. The mind plays an important and crucial role in sanctification in the Christian life. How we think. So through the constant reading of God's word, the attending of the means of grace, especially the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments and prayer, our mind is renewed continually and constantly from carnal thinking of the old man to the heavenly thinking of the new man. Again, Paul tells us how easy this is and what it's supposed to look like. Put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Dear believer, the only way, the only way our mind can be renewed is if we live in the Spirit, according to the Spirit's word, by the Spirit's power. The renewed mind knows God's will, does it not? That's how he closes. The will of God for us is good and acceptable and perfect. God has laid out his will for us in his holy word. The scriptures illuminate for us what this will is. And the spiritual man is able to discern it. There's nothing in God's will that is harmful to us. Nor contrary to God's will. Or contrary to God's character. All that, God's com- all that God commands us to do is good because he is good. All that God commands us to do is acceptable. For he only accepts those things that are acceptable to him, holy to him. All that he commands is perfect, for he is perfect. There is no better way, no other way, than the way which is according to God's will. And our minds, when they are renewed, know that. Now, in preaching, it's good to put up an ideal, and then there's the reality, the practical reality. The ideal is that our minds be perfectly conformed unto God's will. Perfectly renewed. But the reality is our minds constantly fall back into old ways of thinking. I was stuck heavily to my notes today because I want to be precise. But let me plead with you now as a father with his children. Our minds must be renewed. You will constantly fall back into old ways of thinking, which lead to old ways of living. We are not free from the flesh in this life. We are not free from sin in this life. Thus we must live in humble dependence upon God in Christ. Staying at the feet of Christ. Dwelling richly in his word. Feasting upon his word. Not straying from his will. This is not an easy task. It's a high calling. It's a high calling of sanctification. But like all things in this life, the already and the not yet... It's also easy because it's his work in us, not our own. It's his work in us, not our own.
In light of what salvation has been given us, dear church. In light of what God has done for us in Christ, the mercies of God. We should offer up ourselves as a continuous living sacrifice unto God in accordance with the scriptures. Let us not think like the world, but have our minds continually subjected to Jesus Christ. Not the ideologies, the philosophies, the brand new ideas of this world. Christians must be Christian. This is the only way we shall see the kingdom of God advance with power in our day. This is the only way we will see revival break out amongst us once again. This is the only way we shall see the powers of evil all around us vanquished. Is if Christians think, feel, and act like Christians. Conformity to Christ. Dear believers, dear congregation, I now say unto you, as Paul says unto us, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee. Lord, make us unto Christ. Renew our minds, O Lord. Help us to lift our whole life unto thee. As a, as a living sacrifice. Let us live gratefully out of gratitude for the mercies which thou hast given us. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.